Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When I was younger, I didn't really like my first name. I do like it now. I'm especially appreciative of the alliterative quality of Brent Walburn. So good job, Mom and Dad. But I do remember as a kid wishing it were something a bit more common. It just felt at times like I was in a club all by myself. I mean, it's not like Brent is all that unusual of a name, but I didn't really know any other Brents in my town until high school where there was one other kid with whom I shared the name. Also, I could never find my name on gift shop souvenirs. I'd find just about every one-syllable B name there is, including Brit and Brett, but never Brent. Even to this day, when I'm on the phone and I have to give my name, I'll usually say it and then spell it out because I'm so used to people thinking it's any other name but Brent. Again, I really don't think it's all that odd of a name, but I have found that because of my experience of living with this name, that whenever I happen upon another person with the first name Brent, I often feel a strange interconnectedness. Now, it is definitely within my nature to look for meaning in what others might view as meaningless, but I have found on more than one occasion compelling links to other Brents beyond just sharing the name. And even crazier are the connections that I've discovered to have with people that share my full name. I once happened upon a 1994 newspaper article from a local paper in Michigan called the Ironwood Daily News, which listed a Brent J. Walburn as having participated in a local fishing tournament. Now, not only is my middle initial J, but the street I grew up on in Noonan, Georgia, was Ironwood Court. Crazy, right? Also, in 2007, I got a job as a high school English teacher and discovered that same year that there was another Brent Walburn on the other side of the country in California that was also teaching English. How does something like this happen? Perhaps there's a logical explanation to it, or maybe it's just merely my brain attempting to create order in a world of disorder. For me, I can't help but feel that there's something more to it, something mysterious and unexplainable, which I'm totally comfortable with. I fully embrace the mystery of it all. And I believe that it is this openness to the mystery that has allowed me to have my mind blown on a number of occasions. One such occasion was the time I came across the album Once We Were Trees by the band Beachwood Sparks. Now, I usually have a pretty good memory of how I'm introduced to a band, but I really have no idea how I first heard about Beachwood Sparks. All that I know is that I definitely had heard the band name from somewhere and maybe had known there were some elements of country music to it, but really I had no idea what they actually sounded like. But I was in a record store one day. This was probably late fall of 2001. It was my first year of college. Just browsing through the CDs when I happened upon a copy of Once We Were Trees. There was just something about that album title and the really great cover art that made me think this would be something I needed to hear. So I took a chance and purchased a copy. And honestly, at first listen, I didn't really know what to make of it. 
Sure, there were elements of country, but it definitely wasn't a strand that I was familiar with at the time. Graham Parsons and cosmic American music was not yet part of my vocabulary. But I had made my investment, so I kept at it, allowing this mysterious record time to eventually reveal itself to me, you know, the way God intended. It also didn't hurt that the name of the band's bass player was Brent. And to modify a quote from Stephen Malkmus via Silkworm via Will Rogers, I've never met a Brent I didn't like. I just knew in my heart that there was something in this album for me. So I continued to put on Beechwood Sparks once we were trees. And I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Brent Rademacher. I am the bass player, singer of Beechwood Sparks. started in the late 90s. By 2001, we recorded our second album, Once We Were Trees, and I, I was a member of the band, along with Farmer Dave Scher, Chris Gunst, Aaron Spursky, and Ben Knight was also there at the sessions, and it was produced by Tom Monahan, as well as the band. So um, I had a big hand in mixing, and a lot of sway in the production as well, even though we were weren't in a proper studio. That's me. I'm Brent. They call me B-Rad. Bassist and songwriter Brent Rademacher would spend the majority of his childhood in Florida, and it is there that he would begin playing music with his family. Until I was seven, I was in the Midwest. And we also spent a little time outside of St. Louis, so the younger years for my brother and I, since our parents were divorced, were kind of shuffled around from the farm to the city. And then when we were seven, we moved to Florida. We moved down to the Gulf Coast. So it's near Tampa, but the very first place we lived in was Largo. Then we spent our kind of formative years, like junior high, days to confused years in a place called Newport Ritchie, Florida, which is up the coast from Tampa in Pasco County. And um, But we finally moved to Tampa. We got into playing in bands. In the early days in Newport Ritchie, we were in a band together, the Rademacher Boys Band. It was my two brothers and I and uh, our father and even our stepmom. And we would do concerts for community centers and retirement homes and half times at football games and um, events that my dad put on for his music stores. And, and we moved to Tampa and got kind of serious, um, got into punk rock and started playing out in bands, started finding bars to play in. My first instrument was trumpet, but when it was decided that we we're going to do rock and roll, I had a short career as a guitarist. I started my own band called Teen 13, and I was the singer-guitarist, but quickly I got recruited by a local dance band called Not Much to play bass. So 
I switched to bass right away. And I think I was always really interested in bass for some reason. And it really became my main instrument when we started our band called A New Personality. It was a three piece. So it was my brother on guitar, my best friend Steve Fisher on drums and me on bass. So it really gave us a really great time to like learn and develop a style. I kind of got good at bass. I, I used to be kind of good. I I'm, tried to quit bass a bunch of times, but even in the first Beachwood Sparks, I, was, I wasn't the bass player. I was a guitar player. I wanted to play my white jazz master. But after two shows I just and two different bass players, I just said, screw this, I'm playing bass. After receiving some interest from record labels and having a strong desire to get involved with the local skateboarding scene, Rademacher decides to leave Florida and move to Los Angeles, California. Shortly thereafter, he and his brother Darren would form the band Shadowland. I think it was just a given that if I ever moved out of Tampa, it was going to be L.A. We broke up a new personality and we came out, seriously, our second gig, we got signed to Geffen. It was crazy back then, but we were, we were good. We were a really good band. We had a guitar player who was our sound man in Florida who moved out here first, Mark Newman. He was such a great guy. He had so many connections. He knew so many people. He was so personable and nice. He moved to L.A. We followed him out here. He decided to become a guitarist rather than the sound man. We practiced at SIR, Studio Instrument Rentals, which is kind of famous. We, we were practicing on, like, seriously, on Van Halen and Kiss's, like, stages, their rehearsal stages, and, and used great equipment. And we played two gigs. A bunch of labels wanted us, Atlantic and a couple other records we went with geffen because it was you know we knew geffen from asylum records and uh and they were really hot shit then so we just took the deal it took a long time to get the record out but i learned a lot of stuff that i brought into beachwood sparks back in the shadowland days because you know the record didn't come out that good and when i got the hindsight i could tell why you know, it wasn't that we weren't talented and there wasn't a lot of great people involved. It was just we did a lot of things wrong. But that was a great learning experience. After releasing two records with Geffen, the Rademakers decide to end Shadowland and in 1991 form their group further with Shadowland drummer and future circle jerk Kevin Fitzgerald and guitarist Josh Schwartz. Inspired by both the sounds and DIY ethos of the then burgeoning indie rock scene, Further would release three full lengths and numerous singles throughout the early to mid 90s. During their tenure as a band, Further would experience a number of lineup changes, and it is during one such reconfiguration that Rademacher would be introduced to musician Chris Guntz. Well, these guys were at KXLU Chris, Farmer Dave, Ben Knight, Jimmy Tamborello, they basically had the airwaves of L.A., you know, on the left of the dial scene. We didn't listen to KCRW at all because they played 
corporate music. It was really about KXLU and the KXLU were no longer like a kind of goth punk. It was they were playing great indie and then old stuff. They they broke format and they were you could hear the birds and Gene Clark in the middle of the day and and Chris and them were into the indie scene, but the next generation of it. So they knew who further was. And um, I think one time my brother at a show opening for some English band in, uh, at Alligator Lounge said, hey, look at this guy, Chris. We're going to have him join the band. And I was like, great. Can he play bass? Because I want to play guitar and, and drums, too, because I think we fired our drummer and we all started playing drums. It was we got that bug of playing drums that we did a whole tour with Sebado in the whole Southeast. We played like nine shows with them and we watched them switch around. And it's funny. We just like our drummer, Kevin, who was in Shadowland and further, he's a great guy, incredible drummer and a more amazing person. But he got like, we kicked him out of the band because we wanted to play our own drums. So Chris got in the band and Jimmy Tamborello, also from Postal Service, he joined further as well. But as soon as they were in, my brother wanted to make a change. They were in for like two shows. And then he came to me and said like, oh, I want to recruit these two guys, Tom and Keith, who were playing with Josh in this uh, cover band called The Hubcaps. And I said, sure. Yeah, why not? We were like showcasing for labels at like the Viper Room and House of Blues. And it just didn't feel right. Even though the band was good, I just felt like, I felt like, God, we just had Chris and Jimmy and they only played two shows and they were both great shows. And I liked those guys a lot. They, we hung out. I mean, that, that was like further, like 90, 96. It, like we just were rotating members. Eventually, Rademacher's brother Darren would decide to leave further with the remaining members continuing to play together under the new name Rabbit Bartholomew, which would also free up Rademacher to start a new project with Gunst. I said to Chris, I said, hey, man, I'm sorry you got kicked out further. You know, I like you and I like playing with you. Do you want to start a band? We were going down to his um, parents who had a house down in the, it's not down in the desert, but out in the desert. They were like in Palm Desert, but we would go to Joshua Tree and we were like, man, what if we could just like play one of these like roadhouses out here? What if we could play a bar out here, a biker bar? Wouldn't it be cool if we could play like anywhere in L.A.? There were so many music venues in L.A. We just thought like, how can we always have to play these same like couple clubs? And we said if we started a band like a country band, we could play anywhere we wanted. And um, there was a new kid around, Jimmy Hay, who was playing drums with Chris in his other band called Strictly Ballroom. And Farmer Dave was also, they introduced me to Farmer Dave. They came over to my house in Burbank on Spark Street. They literally got there at like one in the morning. I guess they had went out and I said, come over, you know, and they came over and then I meet Farmer Dave and he was across between like Dennis Hopper from Easy Rider and Dennis Hopper from Apocalypse Now. You know what I mean? And I was like, dude, who is that guy? And he's like, oh, he's Farmer Dave. I'm like, Farmer Dave? That's what a great name. And Chris said, hey, if, if we start that country band, Dave wants to play steel guitar. I had a little rehearsal space across the street. And um, like I said, I was playing guitar. Chris was playing guitar. Jimmy Hay was either playing drums or bass. And there was a couple other people who, a guy named Doug Lee, I think he played with us for a while, bass. And 
I think we tried to even do a rehearsal with this girl, Liz Randall, on drums. But Rabbit Bartholomew, it was kind of still going strong. And I actually had my label that I started um, to put the further records out, Christmas Records. By that time, it was called Xmas Records. I had a little night that I was doing at a place called Mogul's. And uh, I said, let's get it together to play a show with Beachwood Sparks. And we did. We, we got Ben Knight to come and play bass and Jimmy Hay played drums. But one night we went to see um, this band called the Seahorses. And it was the guy, John Squire from Stone Roses. It was his band and it was a big show, but it was awful. And we were thinking about like what happens to good bands after. And we were like, shit, what are we going to do? And Josh was just like, you know, he like slammed his hand on the bar and said, I got the best idea. We should take the best name. Beachwood Sparks, because we already had that name by then, because of, obviously I lived on Spark Street. And when Chris and Farmer Dave and Jimmy used to come over, they would be like, how do we get there again? And I'd be like, just when you see Beachwood, the next street is Sparks and turn right. You know, it's right there by the equestrian center in Burbank. And Chris showed up one time and he was like, man, that, that'd be a really great name, Beachwood Sparks. And so that was the name. Josh slammed his hand down on the thing because he liked Beachwood Sparks. He liked what he saw. And he said, we should take the best name and the best players and make one band. And that was like, we were all like, oh, shit, that's such a great idea. And then we were young enough to not worry about other people's feelings. So we said, you know, sorry, guys. We took Tom, the drummer, from further and Rabbit Bartholomew and Josh and Slayer, uh, Pete Kinney on tambourine. And then they joined Chris Gunst, Farmer Dave and myself. So we had a six piece band. And that was, that was like the real beginning of Beachwood Sparks. With the early six piece incarnation of Beachwood Sparks solidified, the band starts playing around the Los Angeles area would also begin recording material, releasing their first single in 1998 on Greg Shaw's legendary indie label, Bomp Records. Eventually, the band would part ways with Tom Sanford and bring in drummer Aaron Spursky. With Tomo, we recorded the first single, Desert Skies and Make It Together. And we recorded a whole album in the, at the Space Shed where further recorded. And that was what uh, Alive Records put out in 2013. Um, it, we just called it Desert Skies, for lack of a better thing to put out. But... What happened was we opened for Beck down in, and I hope Tomo understands when, if he listens to this, how much I love that guy. And I think it's very fucking cool what he did. But when we were playing shows and Tomo was taking a lot of acid, and when your drummer's on acid, it kind of reminds you of that those interviews you see with Joe Strummer when they're talking about Topper Hedden being 
like kind of strung out on smack and it started to show and you know a band is only as good as their drummer but Tama was getting a little far out and it was hard for the drumming because we weren't like a jam band and we weren't ready to go we we definitely liked to jam but not jam like what you call jam these days with like solos and stuff we jammed with like 20 minute like noise excursions and stuff but Tamo had a had a fun time after a show we opened for Beck down in uh, Orange County somewhere. And it, it just it was right when things were taking off. But it felt like, you know, it was time for us to get a little serious. And he was having a little too much fun. So at the same time, we had met Aaron at a show when he was drumming for Lily's. And I had a history with Lilies, uh, with Further, a good history. Friends and loved the band, loved them. They were still doing their, like, MVV meets Pavement, and it was really cool. But when I saw them, the new version of Lilies, the kind of kinksy, it was another show at the Viper Room. Aaron just, like, blew me away. He was such a great drummer, and we became friends. And he used to go play golf, like, once a week at the Pitch and Putt in Los Feliz. And one time he just said, hey, man, uh, your drummer, I love him to death, but he's like, he's kind of all over the place. You know, you need somebody like in the pocket. And and we were just like, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, just make one of those decisions where we said, yeah, you know, let's try it. And, and, um, and I brought Aaron into the group and it was great because Aaron and Chris became really, really good friends. And um, it was fine with me because, you know, I still had, uh, you know, Josh was, one of my best friends so it was kind of cool to see everybody kind of getting along and and it felt like you know things could kind of turn kind of pro you know not in a cheesy way but in a good way you know because labels were coming around and and Aaron knew what he was talking about and stuff so that was the lineup there me and me and Slayer and uh and and Chris Gunston Farmer Dave and Aaron and Josh in time the band would begin to garner interest from a number of record labels, including major labels DreamWorks, Interscope, and Hollywood, but would also experience a lineup change, with Schwartz and percussionist Pete Kinney deciding to leave the band shortly before a planned tour with Lilies in the summer of 99. During their stop in Seattle, the new four-piece version of the band would come to the attention of quintessential indie label Sub Pop Records what we were doing was kind of like Bob Dylan and the band where we would back Kurt up and be lilies and open up as Beachwood Sparks. It was really fun, super fun, but the reason Josh didn't want to do it. So I just made the call, like, let's, let's go without him, you know? And we did. And it was cool. By the time we got to Seattle, the, the new four piece Beachwood Sparks sounded pretty good. And uh, we had the crocodile and Jonathan Poneman was there. Um, uh, this girl, Jenny Hayo and, and Tony Keywell, who's still at Sub Pop, they, they brought him down and um, basically offered us a deal on the spot. You know, I loved uh, Sebado. They were, Lou Barlow is absolutely, in, and Lowenstein and Gaffney, they're, that's, that's my band. That's, for the 90s, that's my band. And um, they ended up on Sub Pop. And, and I was just, I was, I was so proud to be on sub pop records i really was and they really liked us i mean i'm looking back i wish i would have um it was hard for me to handle 
my enthusiasm. It really was because I was really stoked and we'd go up there and they were they actually liked us. They were actually promoting us and 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 letting us do what we wanted. I mean, we could have signed to Interscope or DreamWorks or any of those labels. We could have easily taken like hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we took 5,000 from Sub Pop because it was Sub Pop. After signing with Sub Pop, the band travels to Connecticut to begin work on their debut album with producer Michael Denning. He was like baggage from the Lilies, in a good way. Um, he had produced um, Better Can't Make Your Life Better and um, The Three Way. So Aaron had a lot of confidence in him. The studio was good. Aaron also knew that um, he was so smart because he knew that, and this is looking back, I didn't even realize this. For our, our modest budget that we got from Sub Pop, we flew four guys out to Connecticut, stayed for three weeks and booked the studio time with all the gear and everything that goes along with it. I mean, it was only like a $5,000 advance. See, Aaron knew that, and Michael had this incredible studio, Studio 45, which was where we did the first album, which was the old Colt Munitions Factory in Connecticut. Great gear, incredible gear, and Michael Demi knew what he was talking about. He was really good. So we, you know, that first album was we went out there and uh, really trusted Michael. I mean, looking back, it, the only thing that I regret, and Chris and I talked about this too, and Dave probably knows, is the vocals. I wish we could have had a little more time and a little more. Just, you know, that's the one thing that doesn't stand up on the first album as good as I wish it would have. Um, but we still did pretty good and we had a great time doing it. It got a ton of notice. We're, next thing you know, we we're on tour with the Black Crows because Chris Robinson and, and Gorman, they're like really into this album and they want to take us on tour and hear us play the songs every night. After a short break following the tours to promote their self-titled debut, the band would reconvene and begin work on new material. Did the tour with the Black Crows, went to England and played um, Reading Festival and a, and a small tour of England. And we went to Spain and played a really big tour, uh, like a long 17-city tour. And it was super fun, but crazy and hard. And we got back and we took a breath and we said, like, uh, did we want to sit around and play like clubs in L.A. or did we want to start writing the next record? And. I think. If I can recall, I don't know what time of year it was, but we did a bunch of touring, had a bunch of fun. The record did well. We felt like Sub Pop was going to let us do another one. And this one was going to be on vinyl. Because the first one was CD only. And we were like, fuck, man, we're better than that. And they, they saw it. So this next one was going to be on vinyl. So we're like, fuck it. This is going to be a double vinyl. And we had this one session in Chris's bungalow 
in Echo Park where Chris and Aaron had um, this little compound and it was like Elliot Smith and Aaron and, and Chris. And I can't remember who else lived there. There was some other bungalow, but on the property, there was like a main house that Aaron and Autumn DeWilde lived in. And they had their um, daughter Arrow, who is now the singer for the band Starcrawler. And Chris had his like one bedroom bungalow. I had to go over there one time and help him get a dead raccoon out from under it because they noticed a smell, but they, I don't think they had a landlord who was going to do it. So growing up in Florida, I was good with carcasses. So I was able to go get the thing out of from under. But, uh, but we had this great session at Chris's bungalow. I think we all just had acoustics. I might've had like a little bass or something. I'm not sure what we were playing, but we wanted to hear like, what, what are the next songs going to be? And it was magic. It was so great. We had such a great day. I don't even remember the song. I, I remember one of the songs was Close Your Eyes. That was one of the first songs we wrote and it had this real birds notorious swing to it. And we thought like, this is going to be really great. Um, Maybe confusion is nothing new. Maybe you take the gold. I'm not really sure. But the songs kept coming in that session. And, and Aaron had, had grown some kind of plant on, on the property. This is like what I can probably why I can't remember that day so well. But he was growing some sort of plant on the property that they lived on. And so we all met and we're going to smoke a joint before we start jamming. We all go out and he has the plant. He brings a big bulb from the plant in and he takes a razor blade and he slices the plant down the side and this like milk comes out of it. He saturated the whole joint with that milk and then we smoked it and it was like, it was like a brotherhood, like sacrament session. We were all new. We got to make an album and it's, and we want to be like a plant-based band you know, it wasn't about the Western wear and the frontier ruggedness and that shit. It was going to be like, it was going to be an indictment on, on, on what we had just seen and on the whole touring cycle for the first album. But that day when we smoked that joint with that milk in it, we knew it was like, no, this has to be higher consciousness. As work on the material progressed, the band decides to bring in musician, engineer, and Joe Pernice cohort, Tom Monahan, to produce the record. Tom was a key player in the Lilies scene with Aaron Spursky and Kurt Heasley and Michael Deming. But Tom and Michael had had a, some sort, not a falling out, but they were a production team. And then suddenly they weren't a production team. So we kind of knew we didn't want to go back to Michael Deming's to record the album because Tom was telling Aaron that Jay Mascus has a studio in Northampton where Tom had just moved. And he said, um, you know, Jay and Kevin Shields had just built a studio in Jay's house. And I think I can get Beachwood Sparks in there. So we're like, whoa, that's cool. Tom flew out to LA we had our studio set up in downtown rehearsal with um, a bunch of the old further gear, Yamaha, um, big mixing board that used to belong to the Commodores. Really cool fucking 70s, 2408, really great board. And um, Tom came out and we basically kind of made an agreement that we're going to 
we asked Sub Pop if we could make start a new album. They said, yeah. We said, you know, Monahan's going to produce. He said he can do it at Jay's house. <laughs> and um, we'll make you some demos to show you that we're not fucking around. And so we made about 10 or 11 songs of demos. They weren't quite finished, but they were really cool. They were, they sound great. Ben Knight swears they're better than the record. But the songwriting started coming together. And much like they had done with their self-titled debut, Beachwood Sparks, a band that is the full embodiment of West Coast vibes, once again travels to New England to record an album. Flew into wherever you fly into, and they drove us to Jay's. And it was a big snowstorm it just hit. But it was a beautiful sunny day, but there was a couple feet of snow on the ground. So you're kind of in the hills. I think it was called Leverett, Massachusetts, or Levert. I think it's Leverett, right outside of Northampton. So it's beautiful hills and meadows, and but it's a lot of snow. And then you you kind of get off the highway, and you're not in the suburbs. You're in more like um, the country. You arrive upon this uh, like beautiful A-frame country home, you know. Um, uh, it's just a house, basically. It's a house where Jay and Louisa lived. They didn't have a family yet. And, um, yeah, we realized it was a house. You know, they were cooking dinner and stuff. And Jay's records were out and kind of looked like a cool living room. And you could look out of the big plate glass window out on the meadow behind the house. And there wasn't another house for, for uh, you know, at least three or four acres. And we're like, where the fuck's the studio? <laughs> you know? I mean, we saw some old upright piano upstairs, and that's it. And then we go downstairs, and there is a whole, like, basement, which we don't really have in L.A., but there's, like, a basement, and there's, like, a... He had a big cement drum room that he had his Ludwig Vistalite double bass kit set up, and he had a giant plate reverb in another room, like a walk-in room with a giant plate reverb that was from, like, a bridge over troubled water i think it was used on and there was a control room with the guts from like a like a monitor like a, it wasn't even a mixing console it was just what you need it because i loved it because i didn't want to see a big mixing console because mixing consoles are a joke but it was just the guts it was like the eight channels from a great mixer made into a mixer and there was a tape machine set up 24 track tape machine and then a big rack of gear and, um, a, you know, a couch and then a back door on a, on a little patio that you could roll cigarettes on and go out on hikes and stuff. And it was really cool. But we were like, where are we going to record? And then Jay and Louise are like, well, we're going to go I'll do my best, Jay Mascus. Well, he didn't talk barely at all. And I was really nervous. Another cool thing is when we pulled up to Jay's house, we were listening to the college radio station and the wagon came on. And we're like, whoa, that is so weird. That song came on the radio right when we were pulling up. It was just too weird. We thought it was a good sign. So Jay comes out with his English bulldog, Bob, and shows us around, shows us the studio. When we ask where the fuck we're going to record, he says that, uh, oh, we're going to New York. I was like, oh, what? He said, what a boop, boop, boop. And he's talking in like bleeps and boops, really. It was really weird. But And I was huge dinosaur junior fan so i was a little real nervous but he said he liked the group and he said welcome take over my house do whatever you want we're going to go to our apartment in new york city or in brooklyn 
wherever it was. And you guys can have the whole upstairs. And you can set up in the living room, like right under the big plate glass window and everything. So it was perfect. It was beautiful. It was like very rural and rustic and um, and homey. When we were talking about further, without Dinosaur Jr., there's really no further. And it's pretty unashamed when you hear like the first further album. We actually went to New York City and where they recorded You're Living All Over Me with Wharton Tears. We, we actually went to Dinosaur Jr.'s studio and producer. But to now be in Jay's house under my own terms felt really, really cool. And, and it was really precious to me. And if I was insufferable to the guys, I think, but they, they also knew it. They knew how much I loved Jay and how much, how much I loved Dinosaur Jr. and how much, how much it meant to me to be there. And then they made a record. Once We Were Trees opens with a short instrumental germination. Expertly setting the mood, this aptly titled song is an indicator to the listener that this record is not just going to be your standard collection of songs, but rather an experience best taken together as a whole. My day job at that time was in a studio doing jingles um, and music for film and TV. And I was working with a guy named Scott Hackwith. And... Scott was a Pro Tools whiz. And even though Once We Were Trees was recorded on tape and mixed down to quarter-inch tape and to DAT, it was an analog record. But I had taken a snippet, a bit of, um, from Once We Were Trees, the actual title track, a jam bit that we really liked. And I gave it to Scott, and Scott made that loop. You know, this was like, loops were still cool. So, uh Scott was just messing around and Scott ended up being the engineer and co-producer of um, uh, Make the Cowboy Robots Cry. So it was basically us fucking around on our, at, at my day job. And um, he, uh, he created that loop and I asked the guys if, Hey, we should start the record with it. And um, I think the whole like, <laughs> the like the germination that it was cool because it was a like a, like i think that day in, in the bungalow we decided that it was going to be at least i in my mind i decided this was going to be a bit of a concept i thought it was a great way to start the record and um on the first album we had the sleeping butterfly and singing butterfly jams that come in and out of the of i think this was just kind of more more of that, like, oh, you know, we just don't want the song just to start. <laughs> you know what I mean?
With its effortless shifts in tempo and ethereal vocal harmonies, the psychedelic jangle pop of Confusion is Nothing New is a track in which ample amounts of echo permeate throughout the unique sonic landscape and is the first of many songs on this record that gradually builds to a moment of euphoric release. From what I can remember, the 12 string and the space echo and color sound wah pedal had a lot to do with the vibe, but Dave actually started playing pedal steel, not lap steel on Once Weird Trees. He has got a bunch of delay units, tape echoes, pedals, and whatever else, and his organ as well. So whatever he's doing on that, it's, it's super magic. That Cindy Lauper song, True Colors, is where the title comes from. I mean, that's pretty amazing for like a psychedelic country band from, from L.A. to be dipping back into the 80s and singing about confusion is nothing new. You know, Chris Guns wrote that song and there was like a, a real like concerted effort to kind of make it sound like the birds. We as much as we tried, we were running the hi hats through flange pedals and Jay Maskus. Okay, he has tubs and tubs and tubs of guitar pedals. So I just went through them all and try to find like the weirdest looking one that I could find. We were putting his vocals through like these really cool effects pedals and stuff, and and we were having such a great time. We were trying as m many things as we could do. At least I was to not make it sound like a normal kind of rock song. I mean, we put that song first because it wasn't the template. It, it wasn't a country rock song. It didn't have anything to do with the first album. As a matter of fact, one of our biggest fans was Chris Robinson. And when we gave him the record for the very first time to hear it, and he heard that song, he told Aaron and I, he's like, you guys are weird. Um, and there's this big 12 string part I think we even had Chris double it because we really wanted it to kind of get to that crescendo and be really majestic. But we're doing the uh, the harmony bits at the end, and I remember telling him if he could just play fills throughout the whole ending, just play, you know, on the way down. And I listened to it now, and I was like, God, why did I tell him to do that? I should have. He should have just kept it straight. But I guess it came out okay. I think he did it once during the demo phase, and I said, Hey, that don't, you know, keep make sure you do that. And we were thinking about. Um, my back pages and chimes of freedom um, from younger than yesterday where the drums were a little more free. Everybody knocked Beachwood Sparks for being a real ripoff of the birds. And most people were talking about Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which we didn't really sound anything like because that was like a traditional kind of country record. We really loved Notorious Bird Brothers, which was very jazzy and very psychedelic. Confusion is Nothing New is totally influenced by that Notorious Bird Brothers record. We actually had the Notorious Bird Brothers CD in the CD player 
during the mixing of this song so we could try to get the tone. Um, I don't think we got even close. It kind of hurts my ears these days. I, I really wish I would have done a better job. I wish I would have explained what I wanted to Tom and then let him do it. But I was so caught up in it and excited and I'm glad that people like it. I, I, I just wish I liked it a little more, but it, I think I kind of like trusted Michael Deming on the first album a, a lot, but then this album, I was like, no, I think I want to have a lot to do with how it sounds like sonically. And the other guys probably, I mean, I know they kind of trusted me and no, nothing I did was done, you know, after hours, it was all done in plain sight. But I always wondered to myself, did, were they like, oh, what is he doing? If they thought I was trying to take too much control, but I just figured like, this is my one shot. You know, so many people are gonna hear this. Country Funk, The Sun Surrounds Me, is a track that remembers that Graham Parsons once described cosmic American music as essentially soul music. Featuring farmer Dave Shear on lead vocals, electric guitar and pedal still intricately weave around a steady rhythm section and a bed of humming organ, creating a lively atmosphere and an interesting contrast to the song's melancholic lyrics. loved the band a lot and just to get a little funky a little swampy was really cool if we could ever get the original version out and people could hear the original it was even more like the band like um not big pink and not the second album not the brown album but like once they got into stage fright it was really like kind of dry but the version that you hear on the record is so overproduced because we actually we had a mishap where the reference dat the digital audio tape that we were made our cassettes from at jay's house one of the speaker inputs or the cables was bad we were hearing full dbs of the right channel and everything was hard panned the left channel we were only hearing like barely hearing it it wasn't gone but it was not presented the way in the full decibels that it was supposed to be so we got home and said fuck i guess we were really high because this doesn't sound as good as it did when we were mixing it we enlisted michael deming at studio 45 to do some remixing for us and that's one of the songs he remixed and it, it's just a little overdone for me but the original version was like dry and 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 
it was real drum heavy, you know. It turned out that those mixes that we did were fine. It was just the reference tape that we had was bad. So um, if Sub Pop would let us do, or if Sub Pop would do a, a, an anniversary issue or put the record back in print, we could probably use the original mixes or let, let people hear them. But um, that's a story for another day. But back to the song, it, it's just a great, great song by Dave. The lyrics were incredible. I love the chorus too, because it's very Poco. It's really hard to write a chorus. It's hard to write like a simple chorus. Sun surrounds me and all I'm feeling are the dark times. I mean, it's hard to write a melancholy, simple chorus. And Dave just, that's an incredible song. It's, it's real life. All three of us were going through like breakups, you know? And um, not like, woe is me, oh, but it was like, you know, w wish things could work out, you know, but all three of us were were having a hard time. And Dave, especially, Dave slipped on some black ice in the parking lot of the hotel that we were staying at. And we were staying at this really cool hotel. It wasn't quite as bad as like the hotel that at the end of the movie Fargo, but it was kind of like one of those hotels, but it was so snowy and we didn't even know what the land looked like because it was covered in snow. But Dave and Chris and I were out playing like Frisbee or something and Dave slipped and he broke his knee. He broke his leg basically. And he had to finish the rest of the things on crutches and painkillers and, and then tour afterwards on that. Like, cause we went straight to England back on another tour after we finished the record. So the sun surrounds me and all I'm seeing are the dark times. I feel like that was like Dave's mantra for back then because there was so much good stuff going on, but it was also so hard, you know, we were broke and, and he had a broken leg and uh, I remember it happening, man. I just saw his body contort and twist. And I don't know, I've never seen anybody break something like that. Was, but he, he soldiered on, he didn't go home. Containing high harmonies and a mid-song freakout, the free-willing track You Take the Gold combines the Bakerfield sound with notorious Bird Brothers psychedelia.
that's not done with any pedals or outboard gear. We hooked up another tape machine and we ran the mix through a half inch tape and then slowed one of the tapes down to get the flanging effect. And still, it's not even close to the genius of what Gary Usher did on the Notorious Bird Brothers on Wasn't Born to Follow. But the effort was there. And we weren't going to stop until we got close. The greatest thing about that song, to me, was we demoed it in L.A. But I can't remember if we knew all the words yet. But when we got all the words when we were in um, Massachusetts and recording, we were just like, man, this is, this is exactly what this whole game is about. You know what I mean? Not just the music game, but the whole the whole the whole world and and it was kind of like oh god what are we going to do we got to live this you know what i mean i mean when you sing something it, to me it's got to be real i'm getting a little bit more crafty in my older age with songs they don't always have to reflect the real but at that time it did so it was very hard to like to wonder how somebody like chris could write a great song like that in those lyrics and you know chris isn't from like the poor family you know um, they're not like, you know, uber rich, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, but they're definitely not poor. But it's kind of the way you choose to like live and the way you choose to use your talent or what you do, you know, and how you are going to collect the money. But it's, I think, you know, he moved right to Seattle right after he, we recorded this album and kind of, he was in West Seattle in a, in the house doing really nothing i don't know if he was studying or what he was doing but when you when you take the gold i'll take the forest you can have what's bought and sold i can't take much more of this i always was like oh shit he's gonna quit the band you know <laughs> it's kind of like a throwaway it's not like it's the greatest song ever i don't even think he'll tell you it is but what we did with it and the chords that we used and the way that Aaron plays it and the, yeah, the the one thing is is ripped right off of wasn't born to follow, but but kind of the phrasing and the timing and the one little connector chord, it, it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty good. Following You Take the Gold, and featuring for the first time on the album, Chris Gunt's wonderful harmonica playing, is the skillfully arranged track, Harp's Men. We definitely wanted the song to have 
sections. We wanted it to go from like summer to like winter and back again. And that instant karma slapback that you hear on the drums, we didn't perfect it. It was kind of an indie version. And then the, the upright out of tune piano, we didn't have any kind of piano samplers and Jay's piano was a little bit out of tune, but it made it pretty cool. It made a good effect. fun song to do and it was um like any time that a band member is writes a song like that <clears throat> that you hear some of his you know real life in and some pain um because it was winter when we we're recording the album so i remember he has the line when the summer fell apart um i think he came back from a tour of spain in the summer and i think his relationship was kind of ended but um you know anytime you have that you really want to support at least I do. I'm just very interested in when my friends want to actually write about that stuff. Those are my favorite kind of songs anyway, especially real songs. Um, I like songs about music and pretty things in nature. And I love songs about your real feelings about, you know, what's in your heart. And that song, I mean, the title's perfect. I, what I guess one of the things I can remember about recording that song is the last coda to a place where the light shines we, like when we all went and did our vocal part um jay had incredible microphones too oh my god he had the best best vintage mics but anyway so we go in there and do that chris did his lead vocals in like one take there wasn't any comping you know like oh you did good on this verse and he just went in and sang it and then we're like, he's like, what do you think? And we're like, hey, sounds good. Because he's that kind of guy, you know, it's, they could have probably been better, but he's not the kind of guy that you're going to say like, okay, now go in and, and then when you, when you get to the second line, why don't you um, lay off a little bit or give it more attitude? He's just not that kind of person. Other singers are, you can do that with, but not Chris. So he was done and he, and he had the nice thing for us to, um, to sing over and I remember like I said they were like who's gonna sing this high part and I was like I'll sing it you know and we always wanted to be like Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman but yeah that song was great I love it I, I, that we still play that one too and there's nothing like this the crowd response when you finish that that kind of slowed down gospel the light that's and, and sometimes that's a moment in a room that's what music's all about Let it grow.
track Let It Run greatly demonstrates the band's gift for songcraft and arrangement through its poignant lyrics and gentle lullaby-like verses that slowly build to transcendent instrumental interludes. Even at its most powerful, the song still maintains a level of intimacy, effectively setting up the reward that is the track's final moment of ascension. that we made it it was one of my favorite songs on the record there was so many interesting things that we did on it anytime you sing about letting go or letting it run i mean really life as i've come to know it is about letting go there was a moment after 9 11 when we were on tour with the black crows and we played that song in farmington new mexico in this giant kind of um armory type hall and people were still stunned over 9-11 and there was big american flags behind the stage but there was also a ton of candles farmington is a has a big uh, four corners there it's a big uh, native american population and we opened with that song it was like crazy horse you know i mean we just really the hard parts were really rock, but then we got to that, you know, don't be late, live for live for happiness. Um, we sang that over and over and over, and that was the first song. And, and, and I don't think people, like, they didn't go crazy, but we definitely changed the vibrations in the room. I think that song was, like, criminally overlooked in the reviews. When the album came out, I just think that song was really overlooked. I thought it was like a masterpiece. We did a thing, if you listen to the, the little snare, we turned the snare drum over and did the thing where um, that Levon Helm did, Aaron turned it over and he did the, and he plays the snare on the, uh, don't be late. He's just playing it with his fingers and it's very cool. And like that song was supposed to be like, literally like I, we wanted Neil Young to hear that song and go like, oh fuck this is amazing but instead it, it kept getting smaller and smaller it was supposed to be like wild horses running through like the desert it's weird i mean that's just my take on it and i just think it got that one got overlooked great song though Come on.
The nocturnal waltz old manatee has a timeless and familiar quality to it, as if it could have come straight out of the great American songbook. It was zero hour uh, during the demos, and I had one song for the record. And I was like, hey, I'm fine with Chris writing all the songs. But, uh, you know, I had uh, I had one on the last record. And um, it'd be nice if I could have two on this one, I was thinking. You know, coming from Florida, I, had, I think I took a vacation back there, and I got kind of inspired. And that's a song that Neil Casal used to cover in his solo shows. He loved that song because he, it was so easy he could figure out the chords. You know what I mean? Even though it had a couple minors and stuff in it, it probably had three extra chords it shouldn't have had. But I always wanted to write a song that other people could play and sing. And um, when we were doing the demos and I played those guys a little demo that I made of it. And just when I saw Chris light up a little bit, I was like, oh, cool. You know, everybody loves a little bit of approval. So we decided to do this one. And and the, the version on Once We Were Trees, it was, we were almost done with the record. And the, the bulk of the album was recorded up in the living room at Jay's. So the control room is downstairs and there are headphones, but we didn't use them. We could hear our amps in the room and hear the drums in the room. And... Um, Tom would uh, would pound on the on the ceiling in the basement with a broomstick, and we would hear it. And then Aaron would count the song off. And so, Old Manatee was done like at at night. The sun had just set. It was incredibly beautiful. Aaron just set up like a snare drum and brushes, you know. And um, Dave was at the upright piano. And I had the bass and Ben Knight had come into town with us and he was in there and he had his acoustic and um, Chris sat in the stairwell with his banjo. He had a six string banjo. Like, I think with my songs, Chris didn't want to just like play guitar on it. You know what I mean? Because I think he had enough songs of his own that he had guitar and guitar and guitar. So it, it was cool that he just kind of played banjo on it. And um and we, we, we did it literally in one take. I was, I, I loved it. Mike did a good job mixing that because we wanted to add harmonica and we had to add that in Connecticut later 
because there's that instrumental section that goes from major to minor where it has uh, the songs in E major. But when it comes to the, um, the little instrumental section, there's a big E minor chord in there. I thought Chris playing harmonica over that when a harmonica really can't hit a minor would sound really cool. And it does. So yeah, that was, that was a fun song. And uh, I loved it. That's another one that we still play. It's hard for me to talk about it because it's my own, but I just, I thought like coming from where I come from and how important like manatees are and how much I love them. And I've, my wife actually, once, when I first met her, one of my birthday presents was going to swim with the manatees in Crystal River. So pretty cool. The track The Hustler combines the Grand Ole Opry with Stax Records and then shoots it into outer space, creating something truly special. And in case you were wondering, I'm pretty sure this is my favorite song on the record. I've listened to this song so many times, and yet it still feels as fresh and mysterious as the first time I heard it many years ago. I mean, just listen to that gospel-like organ on the chorus. one that we all wrote together like Chris wrote a part I wrote a part Dave and Aaron wrote a part the Booker T vibes the band vibes we really wanted and the hustler even comes from at the time Jay-Z had that song out I'm a hustler baby and I want you to know not where I've been where I'm about to go it's a sample I think from an older song we were listening to that a lot and it was very cool and uh and that song was like tearing everybody apart because, you know, it was so personal and everybody who added their parts, it was like, oh shit. We all knew where it was coming from. And uh, the only thing that made it hard was um, putting the pieces together. You know, we did have an argument. We had a band argument about the song. I think one of the guys didn't want to call it The Hustler because he thought it was kind of irreverent, um, but we thought it was cool. You know, what are we going to call it? There's no obvious chorus, so just thinking about it, I thought about that car ride from the airport where we were having like an argument about it, which is funny now. It, it, and it was funny then, you know, nobody ever, none of this stuff was life or death, you know. That one we didn't do any like weird sonic tricks on. It was more like we tried to make a soul song and Neil Casal again when we played him this record and he told me he said man I, I listened to the new album and he I forget what he said this and that but then he's like man this the song the hustler and he sang the chorus back to me but he sang it like the right way I've never told this story before but um when he sang uh you know 
I don't wanna carry on this way, but the road's good. I just wanna love you, but there's nothing left to say. That part, he sang back to me in the right notes. Not the way that I sing it, the way like a soul singer would sing it. He, he actually scooped down to the right, and he actually hit a, a real note. He didn't, and it, the hair on my arm stood up when he sang it. I was like, fuck, oh my God, we should have had him in the studio. Because he actually, you know, when we made the Tarnished Gold, he was there and he straightened a lot of those things out for us. by Jay Maskus on lead guitar, the infectious barn burner that is your selfish ways acts as a much-needed respite from the album's more subdued moments and reaffirms the idea that this record is more of an experience rather than a collection of songs. Colored with Roger McGuinn-style finger-picked guitar, sprawling organ, and the insistent soloing from Maskus, the track is held together by Aaron Spursky's steady drumming. Much like he does throughout all of Once We Were Trees, Spursky serves the song, avoiding the impulse to prove his abilities as a great drummer. Aaron didn't feel the need to, to bash out the drums and try to find a, a rock rhythm and, you know, hit a bunch of cymbals. He just, you know, he just hit the snare like we were playing at the Grand Ole Opry. Not till I think the song like breaks down at the end where it starts in that melodic descending thing that is a little more indie rock than it is country rock that he starts kind of, you know, where he really opens up on the kit that's that's the thing that that's the, the attention to detail in the country music and, and the music that the burrito brothers did that aaron paid attention to and we paid attention to too it's because it's so easy to forget it's so easy just to just to rock it out you know and uh if everybody's bashing and jay's wailing jay maskus is wailing and it, it's not gonna I mean, it might sound, it might be fun, but it won't. It's not going to sound that special. So I remember Aaron and I keeping it real tight, you know, and, and that was a great. That was another great, um, great experience to have Jay actually tracking live with us. You know, that wasn't overdubbed. He, we said, hey, pl play with us, you know, and I, and he was getting ready to go to uh, New York. We're like, Jake, will you play a song with us? And um, okay, let me set up an app, and then just. 
we said, don't you want to know the chords? And he's like, no, I'm just going to play solos the whole time. <laughs> For me, it's a big dinosaur fan. That's our band playing a song with, with Jay Maskus. That's pretty cool. We weren't just in his house, but he's actually playing with us. It's kind of written by Aaron. And I think besides country music, one of the influences on the drums for that song was Apple Scruffs. And um, he kept mentioning that. And he, and he threw a couple chords together. And then we all added a couple more chords. And we let him write the lyrics. And he did a rewrite. It was There was a whole new set of lyrics when we were tracking it. But then when we went to uh, Michael Demings in, uh, in Connecticut to... Uh, to finish it, um, he rewrote the lyrics and we um, he handed them to us and we already knew the melody, so we just went in and sang it. It was super fun, really, really fun. Beachwood Sparks' thoughtful and sincere interpretation of Sade's By Your Side is a perfect pop moment and in much of the same way that the Flying Burrito Brothers had done with R&B classics, Dark End of the Street, and Do Right Woman, the band both honors the original and makes it truly their own. You think I'd leave your side, baby? You know me better than that. You think I'd leave you down? I went over to Ben Knight's apartment in Venice or Mar Vista and him and Chris were listening to the 12 inch, the Sade version. And they're like, we should cover this song, they said. I said, yeah. I mean, you go over there, you get really high. So we were pretty high. And I said, that sounds great. We could do it like the band. So we didn't demo it, but it was a given that we were gonna do it. The album was basically finished I was hesitating to think that we were done and I didn't feel great about it. It was also a lot of work, so I was really tired. Um, but I did say, no, Tom was taking down microphones and people were packing up gear. And I said, no, no we got to do the Sade song. Let's all meet up here around sunset right after dinner in the living room around his piano. And we'll do uh, Old Manatee and By Your Side. And uh Everybody, uh, you know, I mean, I remember it was like, it wasn't like, yeah, that sounds great, Brent. It was more like, eh, whatever. But we did it. And um, I think Dave showed me what the chords were. We just kind of rolled through it. And I could tell when we were recording, I was like, well, this sounds really great because we didn't overthink it. You know, we just played it that one time and we didn't demo it and we didn't rehearse it. And we just kind of knew the parts and we made the arrangement and then uh, 
straight away that night late we went back downstairs to the studio and um set up uh microphones and chris sang it like one time <laughs> and i think tom monahan was like okay uh i just remember it sounding great but i remember it. i think there was it was another thing like are we finished is this is this as good as it's gonna get and i just said hey let me sing uh, like a harmony part and the same thing nobody wanted me to but i went and did it anyway because it needed to sound like beachwood sparks and it couldn't just be you know one straight vocal you know chris singing the whole time through so we had to put our two voices on it and then aaron and dave came in and did the uh coda kind of call and answer thing and then uh, and then Chris did something with the space echo. I think it was on the original track, but it was that. It was it's either Chris or Farmer Dave, and it's super spaced out. That wasn't done during the mix. That's on the live take. And um, Farmer Dave had this amazing keyboard uh, module that had like Mellotron and um, some like ARP strings and some other weird stuff it broke out on tour and i don't think he ever got it fixed but yeah he had a little fake hammond organ that he used for the other songs but for by your side he used the module it's kind of a mellotron organ sound i think but yeah it's it's a it's incredible his parts on there are out of this world We brought a rough mix of it back to LA and we were playing at the knitting factory, the opening of the knitting factory, and we were loading into the alley into our van. We had this big blue van and I had a cassette of the rough mix and I plugged it in. It, it was just super dry. There wasn't anything on it. And the vocals were really cool. They were mixed really good on the rough mix, but um, it started playing. You think I leave the side? And uh, our friend who was helping us at the time said, like, who is this, uh, Emmylou Harris? And I'm like, no, this is Beachwood Sparks. And it was just funny that they thought it was a girl singing. And uh, she said in the, in the alley that night, she goes, this is going to be a big song for you guys. And we're like, yeah. And then it wasn't for a while. But I'm so glad we did that song. The only thing is hard is we try to play it live because people always want to hear it. And it's that we, since we didn't demo it and we didn't practice it, and it was that one-time thing in the studio, it's hard to play live. That same vibe isn't there, and it's it's always kind of a letdown. Um, we have done a couple of good versions of it, but normally it's not that good. I remember when I moved back to Florida in the mid 2000s. I guess it had to have been around 2008. Maybe that's when that movie came out. Uh, Scott Pilgrim, Pilgrim versus the world. I met my wife, Kathleen, and um, I was like, hey, we have a song in this movie. And we went to see it um, at the theater near our house on, on like a Friday night. It was packed with a bunch of people, mostly kids. And that part came on, you know, the, our, the scene with, uh, with Ramona and Scott Pilgrim, Ramona Flowers. And it was like, they, I couldn't believe how much of the song they used, how they um, augmented the bass. In the movie version, they overdubbed a bass over the doom doom line thing, and it's this really super cool. And it just meant a lot to me. It still does. I think we're all kind of proud of it. 
But the cool thing about it was, it was like a stoned idea that Ben and Chris had. Ben Knight, and Ben Knight is so important to the band, and he was there for the tracking of it, and he was a cheerleader. Even though I'm the one who said, "Hey, don't forget that we got to do that song." If you want to really give anybody credit for the idea and, and cheerleading it along, it was Ben. Dream Pop Gem, Close Your Eyes, features chiming 12-string guitar, a beautiful and emotive vocal melody, and Spursky's skillful and expressive drumming. But the true highlights of this track are the otherworldly sounds with which Farmer Dave paints the sonic space. I do like the interplay between the 12 string and the organ, the music box effect. It's kind of like very left bank in the birds. And I love the chorus and I love the final outro of the chorus because that is, again, a revisiting theme of Chris's lyrics. like a children's song in the verses. And I loved that about that. I remember the record company saying, oh man, maybe you should leave that song off the record, you know? And I'm like, why? And, oh, you know, some of the words, I'm just like, oh, whoa, okay. But I think, you know, if, you, if you're listening to it as a bunch of Dusty Canyon honky-tonk rockers, it might be a little weird. But if you listen to it as like a children's song or as innocent about if I were, were a bird tonight or if I were a whale. It gives you a lot of insight into Chris and Farmer Dave, but Chris has a childlike quality to him and he still has it to this day. And it's one of his most endearing qualities. Um, 
we thought that was going to be a bigger song, but we ended up not playing it live too many times. And um, there's a really cool version, um, an acoustic version that we did for like a BBC radio show. I recently found a CDR of it and I was going to share it on the internet in conjunction with the uh, anniversary of this record. But I love that whole, like the phrasing of the chorus, close your eyes to see, close your eyes to see. It's a great theme to revisit over and over because it's about imagination and it's about, yeah, imagination set free is, uh, is the very last line of this song, I think. So those lyrics will always remind me of, of like when you're a kid, and you have your imagination carrying you to like you're a whale and you're swimming in the ocean and or you could fly like a bird and then later on when you start you know altering your mind with exotic mood modifiers and different psychedelics you get those same feelings you know and i think there's a big connection between psychedelia and and a child's imagination because it's uh it's something that's ingrained in us in in the not just in our minds but in the earth and in the plants and stuff so pretty cool that like to write a song that could even make you even think about that but i think most people might just hear it as something else but that song is a lot deeper than i think anybody ever gave it credit for still an organ, evoking a wistful late-night vibe. The wonderfully titled Banjo Press Conference contains lyrics that not only reflect the mood of its musical accompaniment, but also the atmosphere of the sessions in which it was being made. I wrote it so Chris didn't want to play guitar on it, so he wanted to play banjo on it. And the banjo didn't plug in, so we put him on the stairwell jay's carpeted stairwell so chris is going to play on the stairwell and we're going to be around the corner in the living room and i came around the corner to look at chris and there's like 12 microphones around him so it looked like a banjo press conference you know what i mean like and they were all old micro i have to have a picture of it it wish um we should have used it on the record somewhere but i still have the photo that i took with my disposable camera and, you know, he's sitting there in his slippers and a sweater and, and he's got like all those microphones around there. And it was just like it was perfect because we demoed that song in um, 
in LA and I wasn't sure about the words. It kind of was more like a coffee commercial, like from the seventies, like, you know, like rise and shine, wake up and, and percolate and stuff. And I, and I really liked the music and I love what Dave did on the, uh, the steel. It just makes you cry. And then the organ, that's not just some third rate country rock. That's really pretty music. And Dave is got a really deep well of, of melodies. You know, we were there at, the, at Jay's house for about three weeks, I think, two and a half weeks. It was, seemed longer than that. And Chris and Dave and I had all going through breakups. I think they're all kind of alluded to in the songs and The Hustler and, and uh, Hearts Mend and uh, Sun Surrounds Me. And um, more than halfway through, all of a sudden Tom hit a wall and, I, and, he, and he was sad. For the first week, he would have to stop to take a phone call from his wife. And he called her darling. Hey, darling. Hey, darling. All the time. And then all of a sudden, Tom was in the middle of it. I don't know if he was sad because we were driving him crazy or something was going on. But he just hit a wall, too. So there was this kind of melancholy hanging over everybody. And there was a sadness. So I rewrote the words just to fit that situation. He called her darling all the time and her name was Shirley. And I say, you know, she, he, she's surely happy and over it by now. You know what I mean? I, I kind of took some liberties just like I did with um, it in, in the hustler. When we say, I don't want to carry, well, Carrie was actually a girl's name. So I went in and did the vocals for Banjo Press Conference and basically <laughs> sang Tom's story. I just did one take and then Tom's like, there's a long silence, you know, in the control room thing. And and then I hear him say, like, I don't know what to say. Because <laughs> he knew what I was singing about. He got it right away. And I just said, oh, just take it as a compliment, man. You, you gave us a song, you know, and he said, OK, cool. As we near the end of the record, we get the reverb-drenched abandon of Juggler's Revenge. your selfish ways with us he plugged in and um to get a sound we jammed for a while and tom just rolled the tape this is just part of like probably like a 20 minute jam that had a ton of different parts and a ton of different um 
This is back when tape was cheaper, I guess. But so Tom just rolled the tape on us warming up, and we would get boogieing, and um, every time it stopped, Chris would go and start, and it would be like that. The chase was on again, and then we would play it for another five or ten minutes, and then he would stop, and he wouldn't. He just wouldn't end it, and he kept going, you know, that riff over it, and so we. And Jay just started wailing, and um, and we had fun. I remember, we I think we said right when we finished that jam, we were like, because Tom was was downstairs, and there was no talk back. He could hear us over the microphones, I think. But we're like, I hope you recorded that. That was just fun jamming with Jay Maskus. So Jay's house was in a place called Juggler's Meadow, and it was really scary at night because the nearest house was you know three acres away or something you know so I think everybody had a good five acres and behind him it was just there it was just country so we took some walks in the snow and almost got lost a few times it's spooky man it's like that New England spooky vibe that Blair Witch vibe or something it's kind of scary so I think we started talking at night when we were out back smoking cigarettes. We all, Chris and I brought some rolling cigarettes and would roll our own ciggies during this album and smoke it, trying to be all like rustic, you know, like the band or something. And <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, but we were out there talking about Juggler's Meadow and then the Juggler, we were like, oh man, this could be like a scary haunting thing so dave was like okay i'm gonna go into this room and do this laugh like uh like the juggler and we'll reverb it out and it'll be really cool so when he went in the room it was like a isolation booth but there was no window on it he still hates me to this day for this but chris and i were outside the door and he's in there going huh Oh, doing this really scary laugh and we could hear the music it was getting ready to like dar, 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 getting ready to take off and so on three we just pounded on the door like really hard and then threw it open and went ah and scared him and it, and it really did scare the wits out his look on his face was just like it was so sad he was so mad and if he didn't have a broken knee he probably would have chased me down and and beat me up because it was it was a real jerk thing to do but you hear that scream on the tape they ended up playing it backwards so that's a backwards laugh and they lined up the part where where we jumped into the room and scared him you know in the beginning there's all that twisted sound and then then i'll say oh, 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 ah! you hear that scream and i jumped in there and, and i felt so bad when i do it because he didn't laugh he he it looked like he was gonna cry and I could tell he was mad at me because he's rarely in a bad mood or rarely gets upset, but you could tell he wasn't happy about that. The penultimate track, The Goodnight Whistle, is a stunning evocation those last peaceful and hazy moments before drifting off to sleep.
What I came up on was like Joy Division. When I learned the bass, post-punk was coming in. So a lot of chorus on the bass and a lot of bass lines with that open D drone going. So many bands had bass line based songs back in like 80 and 81, 82, 83, like the post-punk, a lot of Echo and the Bunnymen and Weird Off Explodes and a lot of other obscure bands. And it's, I really loved Joy Division a lot. So, but those songs, they dry up and they can really sound generic. Um, kind of like a Norwegian wood type of thing, that kind of thing where you have a drone. So it's, if you get on a melody that actually is good, I think it's like we did, we're like, oh, this, this isn't just like a, a generic jam in D. This actually sounds like a song. And I remember Aaron was wondering, should we write some lyrics to it? What they didn't come and nobody did. So we just, like, I remember him asking, what, what does the train going to sleep even mean? And we're just like, I don't know. It, I thought it was very cool. I loved the song. And the one, whenever I do hear it, I, Tom in the control room and he was pounding on the ceiling with a broom. And that would be like tapes rolling. And you hear Aaron go, okay. And whenever I hear that, like, thump thump and then okay and then that one i knew i knew to start the do 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 start the bass line and so that's a fun memory of that song and again dave and chris both the guitar thing is just i do the same thing through the whole song it doesn't change which is beautiful and it for me i just think bass is a rhythm instrument so um, I tried to play it as that one on that song only, but uh, but the stuff that Dave and Chris do on that song, including the harmonica and uh, and all the affected out stuff, it's just really good. I, I always think like if we had kept this album like a thirty-five or thirty-eight minute album, it would have made the record. It would have been one of the songs that we would want on the album. You know, as opposed to one of like the song songs with the verse and a chorus or whatever. And I think it would have um, st stood out. I, I think it is a standout. People always, we, we do play it and people do like it. And for a song with no real words, it's pretty cool. With its familiar intro bringing us back to where we first began, the album's title track is a dynamic number in which each distinctive moment smoothly transitions into the next, eventually concluding both the song and album with nearly two minutes of glorious cacophony.
the version that we ended up using on the album, I think was okay. I don't think we labored over the song part of it. We did a single of this song before the album. We recorded a version downtown, I think on our own, basically. We did Once We Were Trees and Wake Up Little Susie, and then we had a, we had a friend uh, mix it, but it ended up sounding like it was coming out of a cave. But that's where that original dun, 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 it's in um one, two, three, four. the time signature is definitely not four four time. And for me, like the first time we recorded it, playing along to that time signature was was effortless. It was all part of the makeup of the song and being there that day. But when we went to redo it. I remember struggling a little bit. I was playing a different bass because Tom wanted me to use this old 60s hollow body bass. And uh, he was right because everybody was playing Fenders and he was trying to get the bass to kind of stand out a little bit, but not in a big way. Um, but it was hard to play, I remember. So I just kind of gave into it and just let happen whatever it would happen, knowing that once it went boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. I was going to be like locked in and it was going to be easy then because we could turn on that sound and that vibe on a dime. That was like kind of what we were kind of known for. And then um, the words were so great. I mean, once I stood as a tree, once I stood as a boy, now I stand as a man surrounded. I mean, those lyrics are incredible. It's not, she was just 17, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? This is like, it's really, really good. And if you know Chris, knowing him the way I know him now, that we're older and, you know, he's got to be coming up on 50. Um, He must be 50 by now. Um, When we became friends and started the band, we always talked about our childhoods. And... Then we always lived in this kind of like free adult, like L.A. hipster world. And we always acted really youthful and like kids and and even immature and to a fault sometimes because we just didn't want to do it. We didn't want to be. We didn't want to be adults, you know, we didn't. And um my favorite uh, band when I was kind of coming of age and adolescence was uh, Generation X and, and so many songs. And I, and I liked U2 Boy um, in, when I was graduating high school. His songs were all about youth, childhood, but it's rock and roll music. And I mean, I, this song is just one of those coming of age songs. It's not a love song by any means, but it's... Uh, I mean, you have a lyricist, like, you have somebody writing songs like that in your band, you better let them let do songs, you know?
he had once did a great jam that went and we did it once and it was so good but then we had to do it in the studio again and i remember i never felt like we got it we did it again and we were going to cut the tapes together and we kept doing it i never felt like we got it so in frustration i think when chris was overdubbing not only did he come up with the most genius thing and we're i was we were all down listening to him overdub his guitar during the jam at the end because he said he had an idea and he wanted to go do something so he's doing all this crazy delay stuff and solo stuff and he's got his electric 12 string his epiphone and we just start to hear the song like like almost like lit lift off the ground or like the like the forest is like shaking and then you hear like a saw like like the, like those truck saws that cut down the rainforest in it If you listen again, all of a sudden you hear the saw and you can hear it sawing through wood. He's doing that with his guitar. And it's like a like a like a buzz saw. <laughs> we were laughing and crying and, and just thought it was great and it was one of those moments where like, Oh, that's gotta stay on the record and we did. We kept it on there until we fade out. But I felt like what he was doing at the end there, honestly and I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean, this is the way we were anyway, but I felt like, you know, we had put so much effort into the the record and, and thought about things and did them and acted on inspiration that he was just at the very end, we were just going to say, fuck it and just saw over the whole record. And that's fine. In my mind, I just get this thing that he's just like buzzsawing the whole once we were trees thing. And, you know, um, And then that's the record. <laughs> For the album art, the band commissions artist Francesca Gabbiani to create the front cover image, with Spursky's then-wife, Autumn DeWild, contributing to the overall layout and design. Francesca was an artist that Autumn and Aaron knew, and right in Echo Park, and she worked in um, torn paper. And Autumn was the photographer autumn DeWild, and she's a big filmmaker now quite famous and she took the photos and um i remember going down to francesca's studio she took the photos and we lined up the four of us and then that was ended up being the the back cover i think with our head down but she took that our faces and then took the torn paper thing and, ma and made that cover and it was like i mean it was a slight homage to um forever changes when I saw what she did with um, her art, I loved it from the beginning. She had done like a, it was like a naturescape thing with these trees and stuff. And it was, I was like, this is going to be amazing. We already knew before we even saw it, that it was going to be cool looking. And, um, you know, thank God that like we were on a label sub pop so they could, you know, you know, kind of commission her to do the piece. And, um, and, and to their credit, they really took, took us serious that way you know it wasn't like i mean i run a record label now and somebody came to me and said oh you know you're gonna have to pay this artist to do the cover and i'd be like oh really well i mean okay 
this is going to stick the band way in debt and so it's going to end up owing money and they're going to be sad or you know why 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 overspend on a project that's not going to make the money but then you know that's where i learn from sub pop and creation and rough trade well you just spend the money because it's art you know it's art for art's sake it's not art for commerce and yeah you're trying to sell records and you're trying to do stuff i'm sure it wasn't super expensive but the cool thing was that they backed it and they financed it and, they, and we got it and it's cool so it was it was like a concept that we had and and we were able to do it sub pop releases once we were trees on october 9th 2001 having been on tour for much of the time between the album's completion and release the band would begin to experience some significant changes by the end of that year we went on tour and saw the first reviews. It got like heralded in, in some of the, I can't remember if it was the New York Times or, or London Times or The Guardian or whatever it was. Some big paper somewhere gave it a great review, masterpiece type review. And Rolling Stone gave it that kind of mediocre review. Like, why did these guys go in this Radiohead direction? And that that's fine because it's that that wasn't going to make you or break you anyway but um we went on tour at the black crows and it was a two and a half month tour the whole summer the whole end of the summer into the fall where we didn't really get to go play for our fans who wanted to hear the record because they didn't go see the crows and 9 11 happened as well so there wasn't a tour attached to it afterwards where like there was for the first album where you start the songs and people would start to hoot and holler. There wasn't a tour attached to it. So it there was a tour, but it wasn't a tour of, for our fans. We had some pretty good shows in LA and we spent most of the time in America with the Black Crows. And then we went to Spain, but we went to England. And that's the first tour overseas that we brought Neil Casal with us. And we played an incredible show at the 100 Club and some other cool shows in London. But it was on the plane ride back that um, that whole year had kind of caught up with us. Aaron left the band then after that. And Neil went on and did his own thing. So it left me and, and uh, Farmer Dave and Chris to rejoin with Jimmy Hay. But I just remember... Um, when we went out on tour with Jimmy Hay and he, he was playing the songs from Once We Were Trees, some of them like Goodnight Whistle were actually expanded and, and really, really cool. But some of the ones that we never really got to play for our fans um, really missed having that, that kind of four piece lineup. But um, that was the aftermath. It, it just, it brought a lot of changes, you know, if you look at Beachwood Sparks, it was Beachwood Sparks was really only a two album group. It was the first album and Once We Were Trees because the EP we made was totally different and totally, yeah, it was Chris and Dave and I and Ben Knight as well, but it was, um, it was different. In the Beachwood Legacy, we started the group on Spark Street. And then it ended with that last show at the 100 Club in London for the Once We Were Trees tour. That's really the lifespan of the real Beachwood Sparks. And um, 
it makes this record more important because of that, you know. Following the release of their Make the Cowboy Robots Cry EP in June of 2002, the band would do a brief summer tour before entering a period of inactivity in which each member would focus on separate worthwhile projects. In 2008, the band would reunite for Sub Pop's 20th anniversary celebration, eventually leading to a full-on reunion in 2012 with the release of their third full-length, The Tarnished Gold, and have continued to play together off and on ever since. During their initial run as a band, Beachwood Sparks carried on the legacy of cosmic American music, but at the same time, forged a path of their own, creating music multi-hued and mysterious. Once We Were Trees in particular, truly embodies this spirit. It's not a casual listen, but a record much like the great mysteries of life that reveals itself over time, and those that are open to embracing the mystery reap the rewards that this generous album has to offer. It's one of the things I'm most proud of that we did together, and just on a personal level, it's as much as I flack as I give myself because, you know, as hard as I am on myself, I think we made a pretty fucking cool record, you know? And we made this record, like I said, hands-on with our own hands and our own ears with the help of Tom Monahan and Jay and Mike Deming. But also, we played every single song we knew on the first album. And this album came less than a year after our first album. So all these songs were written in like a three-week period. And um, it's pretty darn good for, for that amount of time. So I'm super proud of it. I love it. Um, I need to stop criticizing it. Um, just because my ears grew in a different direction. Because... The comments I get from people, and a lot of them are, are musicians themselves and started bands and stuff. The comments that I get are so kind of rewarding because I can tell people really listen. And when they heard this record, they really were caught up in the mystery of what's there sonically and, and lyrically. You know, it's not all just laid out for you perfectly, you know, like the first album is. You have to do a little climbing and a little digging. So I'm really proud of it, and I, I think I love it. I think it's um, I think it's perfectly titled too. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Brent Rademacher for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Once We Were Trees and more from Beachwood Sparks at curationrecords.com, various streaming platforms, and subpop.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.